0: So you might be thinking this is the end of the service. (laughs) Uh, And because you also aptly said I preach too long, (laughs) I will say uh, I have so appreciated the opportunity to hear from you when you attend other churches, if you're on vacation or whatever, and you share just how much you appreciate that your appetite for the word is increased. So, uh, just uh, I'm thankful for a church that gives me the freedom to say what God is putting on my heart uh, to share with you. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 1. This will probably be one of the fastest sermons I ever preach. Uh, I do know that we have uh, a schedule in front of us. But I wanted to, by way of introduction... Um, invite us to the text of Hebrews chapter 1 this December, this Christmas season, as we prepare ourselves um, for remembering the birth of Christ. Is there anyone here that has uh, never seen a Star Wars movie? You've never seen one. Okay, Larry. (laughs) (laughs) Larry. All right, Rod, all right, uh, so you guys can check one out this afternoon. Um, I think there's nine of them, and then a bunch of other ones, um, but if you've ever seen a Star Wars movie, right, it begins with the, the title scene, Star Wars, followed by the theme song, and if you know it, you can hum it along with me. I gotta, Levi, get me started. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> See, that's the only special music you're ever going to get from me. And then for the next minute or so, right? There's the, the title, and then there's a bunch of words in the prologue that is setting up the scene for what the, the story of the movie is going to be. It gives you all the background context of what's happening. That's kind of what we got in Hebrews chapter 1. We have this brief introduction that serves as a prologue for what the main focus is for the rest of the book. Now, we're only, we're only going to take a couple weeks and look at chapter 1 itself. Uh, But if you've ever taken any time to read through the book of Hebrews, you know that the author is bringing us up to speed of the singular event that is going to dominate this whole book. And the dominating thought is this, Christ is superior. It's the main theme of the book of Hebrews. Christ is superior. Now, I say the author because we're not sure who wrote the book of Hebrews. Church history says that it, it could quite possibly be the Apostle Paul. But there are some questions about that because Paul himself is not attributed. He didn't say "I Paul" or "I an apostle" uh, write to you. Um, and, and, and really, if you if you do any kind of grammar studies in the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews itself is like the highest form of Greek. In all of the New Testament. And if you compare what is written in Hebrews to Paul's other writings, there's just a complete difference in the way that he uses or the author uses the Greek language. And so church history has said also maybe possibly Barnabas wrote it or Luke. But we're not sure. Here's what we do know. God wrote it. And God has preserved this word, whether or not we know what human wrote it, and, and it is a part of his word uh, for the last 2,000 years. And so God is wanting us to understand the supremacy of his son. Now, this letter was written in an important part of, uh, period of time for the church. It was written in the mid to late 60s A.D., so some 30 years after Jesus died. And we, we get that, that from the clues of the, in the text. We know that the, the writer of this letter speaks a lot about the sacrificial system of the Israelites and the temple. And so we know it couldn't have been written after 70 AD. Because in 70 AD, the Romans went into Jerusalem and destroyed the city and ripped down the temple. They raised it to the ground. And we know that it wasn't early in church history because the theme of this book of the supremacy of Christ is is reflected in the backdrop of the intense suffering and persecution that the believers that read this letter were facing. And we know that the persecution didn't start until about 64 A.D., and so it, sometime between 64 AD and 70 AD, some six years, there, this letter was written. And it was written, we think, to a specific group of Christians that had a Jewish background because of the amount of Old Testament analogies, the, the law, the prophets, the sacrificial system. But they were people that were under persecution and very likely were in or around the city of Rome. So they were Jewish christians that came to faith and as they came to faith we know that claudius and and we know that um that the the roman emperors nero were increasing their persecution of those who were following christ and so the author of this letter writes it to these people to say stay faithful and some of you shared in our testimony time right life isn't always easy In fact, at times, it seems like it's intensely difficult. And the author is saying, keep your eyes on Christ who is superior above all. What's important for us to discern is not just who it's written to and why, but it's important for us to discern as believers that we always keep our eyes on Jesus Christ. Now, this, pa- this book itself is written around five warning passages, and that's really the structure of it. And these warning passages show us the peril of falling away when we don't keep our eyes on Jesus Christ. And these warning passages aren't written in, in the, the perspective of losing your salvation, because you can't lose your salvation. It's that secure. God guarantees it. But the warnings are for those who love Jesus, who shrink away from him due to persecution, due to the unfairness of a sinful world pressing in against them. And and the author of Hebrews is saying, watch out, because if you do that, you could lose your reward in the future. And so there is something to come for those that remain faithful. We call them the crowns of Scripture, the rewards that we receive when we stand before the Lord. And so these warnings are written so that we wouldn't lose what is to be ours in the future. The priority, though is that the author wants his readers to see the preeminence of Christ. See, the more that we mature as Christians, the larger our vision of Christ increases. So it's not like we come to Christ and we have this full understanding of who Jesus is. We come to Christ and we receive his grace and we're forgiven of our sins. And as we walk by faith, as we grow in our understanding of who Jesus is, as we come to understand sound doctrine, as we hear his word over and over and over again, what it does in our lives is it expands our vision of who Jesus is. We are caught up in the grandeur and grace of our Lord. And this. This letter, as we are focusing in on the grandeur of Christ, demands a response. This letter is written in such a way that the author is saying, now that you have this vision of who Christ is, what are you going to do about it? What will happen as a result? So you can't come in contact with the truths that this letter and all of Scripture contain and walk away from it and go, Okay great news. No, you come in contact with the understanding of who Jesus is and and the reality of why he came and the perfections that he he produces in us. And and there just can't be any other response than for us to fall on our knees and worship and honor of him and, and just be totally enraptured with his glory that we're a people that have a singular focus in how we live. That life really then becomes all about Him. If you don't see the connection yet of why we're looking at this chapter during this season, hopefully the light is now turning on in your minds. That in the season where we're prone to be so busy, with so much distraction, that it's critical that we see the supremacy of Christ in Christmas to hold on to the Christ of Christmas and to renew our thoughts and affections for Emmanuel, God with us. That Jesus came to us so that He could die in our place. And for some this season, it's a wonderful reminder of God's gracious activity on our behalf. And you're going to hear and and see the things that, that the author of Hebrews brings up. And you're like, yes, thank you, Lord, for reminding me of such grace. For others, it may seem you're limping to Christmas as the disappointments and frustrations of life have been pressing in. For others, it may be that life here has been crowding in and you're distracted with just the world. And Christmas doesn't come become a, an opportunity to come to the manger to see the Christ child. But it comes with, oh, I've got to go to this store and buy this thing. And how am I going to pay off that? And, you know, we're so consumed with the consumerism of this season that we would be able to see Christ. And there might be some of you, you don't know who the Christ is that we celebrate at Christmas. And maybe over the next few weeks as we we drill down into the text of Scripture, uh, you begin to see the supremacy of Christ in a brand new way because it's never been yours. And I pray that you see that Jesus is the Magnificent One and that He is alone in history as the God-Man who came for you to rescue you because He loves you. I pray that we see in this season a renewed wonder for Jesus who came to restore our relationship and fellowship with God. And so the author opens in verses 1 and 2 very quickly. He doesn't say who He is, who He's writing to, but He says, God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days, has spoken to us. In his son, and I'm going to stop there because next week we're going to look at the uniqueness of this son that is spoken of um, in verses two and three. But the author kind of begins, right? And he says, God, after he spoke long ago. Now, what's interesting to see in the, how this book opens is it gives us thing, its clue into the authorship. We don't know the person, but as I said, we know that God spoke. It's God who has been speaking. In fact, it's God who is always speaking. God communicates to us. And we we can't miss that. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and many ways. God is a communicating God. What I mean by that is the Lord longs to be in a relationship with his creation which is primarily us, that God even long ago was speaking and he was speaking primarily in the Old Testament through the prophets and the many revelations that he gave of himself. That he spoke is obvious, but he also spoke in many portions and in many ways. Now, you could say that God spoke in different modes or in different occasions. And we see this throughout the Old Testament. The means that which God spoke includes types, symbols, commandments, precepts, warnings, exhortations, visions, dreams, signs, parables, events, face to face visitations. God's way included supernatural interventions in the history as well as natural phenomenon such as storms, plagues and other historical events. They also included people, namely the prophets through which he spoke. Now, the emphasis here is on the grand diversity of God's speech in the Old Testament. God utilized great devices to instruct his prophets. God spoke to Moses at Mount Sinai in thunder and in lightning and with the voice of a trumpet. He whispered to Elijah at Horeb in a still, small voice. Ezekiel was informed by visions and Daniel through dreams. God appeared to Abram in human form and to Jacob as an angel. God declared himself by law, by warning, by exhortation, by type and by parable. Do you get the perspective that in the Old Testament, God was very concerned about communicating with his people? He's not silent and distant. He's not far off. He's not this creator that makes something and walks away from it. God made something and then he enters close to it and he says, I want you to know me. I want you to hear from me. The significance of this immensely creative and varied communication is that it dramatically demonstrated that God has a loving desire to communicate with his people. But as all of those truths flood the minds of his readers that came from a Jewish background and understood the stories of the Old Testament, we see something different in what God is doing. That God is still speaking. Church, God is still speaking today. But as we transition from verses 1 to verse 2, we get the sense that, but no more. God isn't doing what he did in the past. He's doing something brand new. What does verse 2 say? In these last days has spoken to us in his son. Very simply, Jesus is God's final word. That Christmas reminds us that God has said all that he needs to say to his creation by giving us his son. He doesn't need to say anything else. He sent Jesus. That in a world that is desperately searching to hear something of value from God. That they're turning over every rock. That they're reading every tea leaf. That they're looking into every bit of creation saying, how can we hear from God? God is saying, I've sent you my son. Hear him. And Jesus is God's final word. Now the original language in verse 2 says that God has spoken In son, not in his son. We add the his. So what does that mean? Well, the emphasis is that the person of his son contains everything that God wants to say. He's spoken in son. You might be saying, God, what are you saying? My son. God, what do I do? My son. God, who do I need? My son. Jesus is the ultimate way that God is speaking today. Listen, the point of these verses is to remind us that we do not take the initiative to discover God, but that God has taken the initiative to reveal himself to us. Like in a world that is searching and and wanting to hear if they even try, but in in many ways are just living life like this, God is saying, no, I'm, I'm coming to you. I want to rescue you. I want you to see that all that you need in life is wrapped up in a relationship with my son. That it's in Jesus that we have all the fulfillment of all the warnings and all of the blessings that were found in the Old Testament. And that it's in Jesus who is the fulfillment of all those things that we find life and life abundantly. As a church, may Christmas remind us that God is still speaking. That for the readers of this letter 2,000 years ago, facing persecution and apparent silence from God. Right? Isn't that the temptation when we are persecuted or when life is going off the rails? We're tempted to think, God, you're not listening. Because if you were listening, my life wouldn't be a mess. Because I'm crying out to you. I'm praying to you. I'm asking you to work. Prayers offered in trouble that is still pending. And if you've ever felt that way, may you come to the nativity and see the Christ child who is born. And may you hear all that you ever need to hear from God. Because it's Jesus that makes life all put together the way that we need it. And it's Jesus that is going to guide our steps. It's as if in God's kindness, He is gently saying to us today, I'm still listening to you. I still hear what your greatest need is. I'm still speaking to you. And come to my Son, and you will receive all that you ever need. And so as we close this morning, you owe me. (laughs) Steve didn't even need to shut me off. As we close this morning, I'd like to conclude by reading another prologue in Scripture. And I pray that we take great comfort in our God who is still speaking to us. So turn with me to John chapter 1 as you turn to John chapter 1, I'm going to ask you to stand in the reading of God's Word. Stand if you're available. And hear the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light which, coming into the world, enlightens every man." He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt. Among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who sits in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Let's pray.